Our passage today is Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to, whom, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. This thing on? Good. We didn't do a test this week. In fact, I don't even know how to wear this thing. It just fell off. Uh, so if you're here, I always say this. It's your first time here. I'm not the normal preacher. Don't judge uh, what's about to happen at Sojourn based on that. Uh, good job reading, Gina. Um, today's passage is Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. And... Uh, I don't have a good illustration. Dylan did a really good job last week with the Disney princess illustrations. Uh, I, don't, I tried. I really thought of some things. and I even went so far as to look at plot summaries on imdb.com. Nothing. But I thought about that this morning. Actually, Paul gives me an illustration to start, so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, I was very impressed with that, uh, what you did. So we're just going to jump right in. And man, those songs were great. Shelby, thanks for picking songs up that totally typify union with Christ. That's going to be a huge theme in today's passage. Uh, if union of Christ, I feel like I'm a baby at understanding union with Christ. And this week it was just an unbelievable delight to get to kind of jump into that doctrine a little bit more. And I hope to maybe even stir some, uh, some of you to jump in and read and listen and, and kind of see what Paul's trying to do here. Starting in chapter 6 is when he kind of began that thought. Um, but we'll talk more about that. Every one of those songs just made me think more and more of that. So I hope that when we leave here, we, you know, whatever problems we brought in, like you, you brought stuff in, right? That's good. Like you, we're all dealing with stuff. We're, we're humans. And I pray that when we leave, because of our union with Christ and what he has accomplished for us already, we're married to him already. And, and what's going to happen in the future, our hope is secure. So I hope we can have a 10,000 year view of kind of what we're going through right now. That's my hope as we talk about this. But Paul had started this thread of thought Back in chapter 6, uh, verse 14, you can look back in your notes if you want. It says, you are not under the law, but under grace. And he started in 6.14, and he kind of took a sidebar, uh, which is the last week's passage, until today's passage. So he gives us an answer on why we don't abuse grace. And then today, he gets back to this thought of law and grace and our relation to each. So actually, for my mind, as I'm trying to follow his logical thought, I like logic, and Paul's so good at that. Uh, it actually almost fit better for me to, if you're reading his argument, to jump from 6.14 directly into 7.1 here today in our passage uh, and what this means for us. So we're going to be starting this discussion on, the, on law over the next couple weeks, uh, and I think it's helpful to remember what Paul, just to recall to your mind, 
what Paul had been fighting in chapter 6. Dylan preached through uh, twice. He said in chapter 6, verse 1, and in chapter 6, verse 15, this objection that if we're saved by grace alone, it's not the law that saves us, then we're going to abuse grace because the Jews couldn't understand that. And I'll talk about that more in a second. Uh, But twice he had to say, what shall we say then? Are we going to keep sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. He says that twice. And if you've been here the past few weeks, he has obliterated that argument. Paul has not made it think. I think if you've been sitting here, I bet you're not, you've not thought, oh man, I do feel like Paul's taking sin seriously or not very seriously. He has really hammered that home. But I think what we can do here is a great opportunity to kind of look deeper into what the cultural understanding was of the law of the people that Paul was preaching to. There's a guy I'll quote a couple times today named Tom Schreiner. I think he's awesome. Uh, maybe the best living guy on Romans, who knows? Uh, that doesn't mean much coming from me, but some other people have said that too, that are way better than me. Uh, and he thinks that Jews are reading this, not just Jewish and Gentile Christians, but actual just Jews that are even coming in contact with this. And if you're a Jew, the cultural ears that you would have read that, if you would have heard Paul say, challenge this, Uh, with this, you know, the law saves us by this radical idea of justification by faith alone, you you would have, uh, you'd been really offended. This was the water they swam in. Like some have said, how can a fish describe water, right? That's all they understood, the Jews understood, was that the law saved them. It was completely ubiquitous. You can't just walk right out of that. That's why Paul has said it so many times. And if I sound like a broken record, I'm trying to base that off of what Paul's been doing here in the last chapter and a half. We have our kind of cultural mantras maybe I try to think of something, maybe life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or um, the American dream, things that are kind of just like we believe that, we've grown up with that saying, and sometimes the gospel will come along and be a little bit subversive to that. That's exactly what's going on, except the gospel wasn't just subversive, because for the Jews, the solution to their problem of sin, they knew, just like we all do, something's wrong with the world, but their problem, or their solution and answer, start to finish, was the law. They thought they were saved by the law. So they even had a saying that said, the more law, the more life, which is, that's a lot. So if you believed your whole life, the more law, the more life. And then Paul comes in and says, no, actually the law came to multiply sin. It's like, what? Like, what if I told you that the American dream wasn't the thing you're after? What? Right? Like, no. That's exactly what they would have been like. Um, and they, they were objecting, which is why they're like, no, Paul, that's, if you take the law away, then you're going to sin like crazy. And that's why he's obliterated in chapter 6. Uh, he's been saying the exact opposite of what they believe. The, law, the more law, the more life is not true. In fact, it multiplies sin. And we need to realize we're not under it anymore. And that's the world. Now, we're going to talk about it. He's not disparaging the law. We'll talk more about that. I'll get into that uh, later. But I think that if we look at to the original recipients and what they're challenged with, it doesn't at all negate or diminish what we're challenged with. That's not what I'm trying to do. I think it's been very uh, the, the gospel's offensive. You, you should be offended today. If I'm preaching the gospel right, you should be offended. Not at what I say, but hopefully directly from Scripture, right? That's, that's what it does for us. And so for us in our culture, it may not be literally the Torah. It might be just that, you know, this kind of Southern American evangelicalism, whatever, that if you're decently good, you don't kill anyone, you know, you're good with God, right? That's, that's actually following a certain kind of law. And Paul would as we've seen many times, that justification by faith alone is just as scandalous to our culture as it was to theirs. So, um, robust, Paul's answer. And uh, once again, I think it's been hard to breathe almost hearing him rebut this. He's a, he would have been a great lawyer. Uh, well, he did know the law, right? So in our passage today, though, Paul kind of 
starts to get into the, a little bit different um, understanding for us of the law. Uh, he kind of starts with this very Paul-esque thing where he'll, he'll kind of, I don't know, set some common ground with his hearer. Like, hey, I'm going to say something, you're going to agree with it, and then maybe I'll say something really offensive, and you'll be like, hmm, right? And that's, that's what he does here in the first three verses. It's pretty simple, this broad principle in the first three verses that we read here. If man is dead, the law can't touch him. I don't know. If you're a lawyer, you can tell me, and like, no, that's, that's not true. But I don't think you can, like, sue a dead person, can you? Or Maybe you can. Can you, Mike? Maybe. I don't know. You can tell me. I, maybe a better way to say it is, like, a dead person's not going to get a speeding ticket unless it's some weekend at Bernie's type situation, um, young kids, they, right? Uh, but the point is, the common principle, you know, if your spouse dies, you're not bound by law to them anymore. You can marry again. This goes even beyond Mosaic law, this common universal argument um, that everyone would agree with, right? So that's kind of the first half of our passage. And then he moves to the specific, where he's going for in, in, in 4, 5, and 6, uh, which is, is kind of offensive, but super encouraging, I would say, um, to us. So uh, we're removed from the law. So what? That's four, five, and six. So what? What does it matter that we're removed from the law? Read verse four with me. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, hammer in that, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may be uh, bear fruit for God. In other words, when you died to the law, you weren't set free to not have a relationship at all, with anything at all. We, we've talked about this a lot, too. This is repetitive, especially in my home group. Sorry if you're my home group. Freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. That's a terrible definition of freedom. That's a, maybe an Americanized, like, bootstraps, whatever, rugged American individualism, whatever you want to say. I love America. Don't, I'm sorry. But you understand that our idea of freedom isn't exactly what Paul says freedom is. Freedom in Christ is different. In fact, last week... He said it was what? Slavery, actually. Um, so what does that mean? What are we trying to define here is what he's after. When you're joined with Christ, when you're set free from that law for salvation, you're joined to something, and it's way better than you. In fact, I think it's in Galatians 5. Uh, I didn't write this in my notes, but uh, Paul actually says, um, you know what? I actually gave you the Spirit so that you don't do anything you want to do. Because what you want to do isn't the right thing. You have a sinful nature, and it's going to take you somewhere else. That's pretty offensive in and of itself. Uh, but it's not really a difficult concept to grasp what he's saying here, but the implications of this now being united to Christ in verse 4 are pretty overwhelming. We'll get into that uh, in a little bit as well. So again, in chapter six, or verse 6, I'll just read it. He kind of answers the question. It's almost a repeat of verse 4, but in different words. He says, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. One author said, death to the law makes servants, not sinners. So that's the entire point of the passage. We could probably just go home if you wanted to. Um, so we're like, all right, sweet. Uh, <laughs> we're dead to the law, and now we're going to be servants, not sinners. But there's actually some applications here I think are pretty great. I'm not going to reread uh, verses 1 through 3 here, but I want to back up uh, this illustration. The simple meaning here is that the law is only binding on us if we're alive. So Paul uses this illustration, illustrations like Dylan gave us last week, help us to understand an important truth. I will tell you that if you read about this passage, a lot of people like kind of get into the weeds about what does this mean? What does that mean? What does this mean? It's not an allegory. It's an illustration. Not everything means something. The point 
is pretty straightforward, and illustrations help us because three-year-olds can understand a Disney princess idea. It's a smaller story tied into God's bigger story, and that's all Paul's trying to do here as he starts our passes is to uh, not to think about an illustration too much. If you think about it too much, it's not an illustration anymore. It's done the opposite. He's simple. Contextually, he's been talking about union to Christ. He said in chapter 4, we're baptized with him into his death, um, and we're united with him in a marriage uh, here. And just like death ends a marriage, since we're united to Christ in his death, our marriage to the law is over. Uh, He's not disparaging the law. Again, all he's saying is that since we've been united to Christ in death, we're united or married to him, and that marriage makes us dead. Uh, As a couple of the guys, I told you I'd quote Schreiner. If you don't believe me, he said this. (laughs) One's relationship to the law changes when death occurs. Pretty straightforward. Another guy, Doug Moo, very famous uh, Roman commentator, said death severs our relationship to the law. So now we understand the illustration Paul was using to show us that we died to the law. This is to me where, like, where the, I don't know if you should say this, but it's where the real fun begins. It's when we get to jump in. So what does it mean for us, right? Unity to Christ, union with Christ. Look at verse 4 again. Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We've become dead to the law. Um, and we have a really important distinction here in regards to the law because it sounds if it sounds bad, he says later on in, in chapter 7, because that would have, as offensive as it would kind of sound to us, it would have been unbelievably offensive to them to hear this. So Paul comes back and says a little bit later on, by no means is the law sin. He said the law is actually holy. Here's where we need to differentiate. You can say I'm not saved by the law and I'm dead to it, and also it's really good and it's holy, right? God said this to us. Uh, we're in Christ. We just don't have to earn our salvation anymore. Uh, the law is, he never says the law is dead, is another way to say it. He says we're dead to the law. He never said the law is dead, but it wasn't meant to, and it can't save us. The law is awesome. That's why David says, man, I, I love the law. He says that multiple times. I meditated on it day and night. I delight in it, but it's not awesome. In fact, it's deadly if you try to use it to save you or to actually sanctify you as well, Right? We talk about the salvation part, but we forget the sanctification or justification. We forget the sanctification part. So we're dead to any law we try to follow for ultimate fulfillment or salvation because they all come from the same place, which is human pride, which begs a question for us. Like, what's our law? Like, what are you chasing? What's that thing out there that, you, you know, you, if you just like had it, it would fulfill you. Um, what is, you know, what are, you, what are the things you mainly talk about, the things the places you go, um, and then like what does Scripture say priority looks like? He's trying to show us in Scripture what living uh, under the law for salvation looks like versus living under grace and what it means to be united uh, by Christ. Um, We were introduced to this doctrine, like I said, union with Christ back in chapter 6. And what I'd like to spend a few minutes doing here with verse 4, I skipped a slide by the way, Ramsey. Uh, I was going to say, by the way, when you go into home groups or wherever your community setting is, uh, I, I, I ran across such a great, as I'm trying to like wrap my right mind around, okay, here's my priorities, and here's, here's what God says in the scripture our priorities ought to be, here's what they can kind of slide into whenever we start to live by the law, and one of the things God's given us is community to kind of rub against us a little bit and say, hold on, be careful there, Right? And I ran across a really great definition, and I think maybe in home group you guys should uh, look at it, and you can put that up there. But it says what we, I think sometimes we talk about community a lot, at least I do, and I don't define it very well. 
And this pastor said a great definition. He said, what we do consistently and together forms us. What we do consistently and together forms us. So when you get into your community, uh, it's, it's very good once in a while um, to redefine this, like I said. And I, I think I, the reason I love this definition is because you can do things consistently but not together, or you can do things together but not consistently. When you do them both, it forms you in a very real and deep way. So what are your communities, right? And where, where are those places where you, you need biblical community to be speaking into you uh, some of the offensive things the gospel uh, shows us here? So what I want to do is spend a few minutes looking at verse 4 and examining some of the applications when he says, for example, we died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. We're saved to something, not from something. So what are the privileges of that? What are the privileges of union with Christ? I, I listened to a couple guys this week talk about union of Christ, and one of the things that people that really push this doctrine or teach it well is that sometimes in our past, we focused on the gifts of salvation of Christ, which are awesome, like justification, like when you're first saved, sanctification, like you're growing holiness as you get more and more towards God, the glorification is happening, adoption as sons and daughters, right? We, we focus on just those things, but we, those are gifts from the salvation, and we forget there's a giver. And though, as awesome as it is to talk about the cross, we have to remember that the cross unites us with God, and that's Christ. So that's what he's trying to go through here, is Paul's reminding us, um, don't miss the gift or miss the giver. And so when I talk about privileges of union with Christ, I'm not just talking about privileges because it's awesome to have privileges. I'm saying privileges that will point you to him. And one of the things he mentions and this first privilege here is we're like married to Christ. He uses that several times in Scripture, this imagery of the metaphor of being married to Christ. We take on a new name in Christ. And we got married, and, uh, and, and Gina took on the Mendenhall name. Sorry. That's a, there's way better names you could have had, right? But when two become one, you, you kind of have a new identity. That's what he's trying to say. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? Well, we're a new creation. We take on a new name, and our name is Christian now that we're in Christ. And he uses that metaphor over and over. There's so much depth to that. And, and it's not like, our, like I said, our terrible human names. It's, it's something way better because there's a name that's so much better than any name that we could have, right? There's a name that's above what? All names. That's really cool to think about the privilege of what that means, that you're now united to the name that's above all names. So like I said at the very beginning, if you came in here with a load on your back, which we all did, Think about what that means 10,000 years from now when you're around a table with this man, God, who saved us and took our, like, there's so much privilege to being called a Christian. You're in Christ. Um, there's a name that when it's said, every knee will bow on heaven, in heaven, on earth and under the earth. That's an amazing thought. And so, like, what status or privilege are you after in this life? Like, if you just had it, you'd be like, yes, that's it. I'm complete. And you just like, that's what you're going for, whether it's a job or, or a privilege or status. And then like there's this one that's not even on the same planet that we already have. That's the point, right? You already have it in Christ. Union with Christ is pretty amazing when you think about the privileges. But he also goes on and talks about possessions of Christ. I have a slide here of 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21 through 23. Uh, this is a section where Paul's kind of talking about if anyone thinks he's pretty smart in the world with your achievements, status, titles, whatever. He tries to use that as leverage or privilege. Paul says, no, let him become a fool. Because if you're not a fool, Christ will level you at one point, hopefully in this world, not the next. 
That's the point, right? Those thoughts about like what we can possess in this life are futile. But then he says this awesome thing to the have-nots. Uh, and he says, let no one boast in men. And this is the cool part. I think I have it. For all things are yours. Think about that for a second. That in Christ, because you're unified to Christ, all things are yours. And he goes on, and once again, the context here, he's like, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or earth or the present or the future, all are yours. And you all are Christ's. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. And I thought that was a really awesome thought. And one commentator said something really profound. He said that um, you cannot add to that. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty good. You can't add to that. Whatever you want in life, you already have more than that. And there's nothing else you can add to all things, correct? There's massive implications for that. And what he's using here, specifically an application, it's kind of like a political thing, right? What they're doing here, they're dividing over the glory of man and putting glory on good dudes like Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. And I think we easily divide over things like that, even politically. How many of us have had a relationship that we've had harmed by placing too much glory on a man or a woman representing a certain view, right? Even especially in this case within the church setting, which is the context he's talking to. Because what the bottom line is, we think that possessing human power is what we need most. Paul's like, no, union with Christ tells you you have everything you need. Possessing anything on this earth is not, secondary is not even a word here, right? It's, it's a blowout. <laughs> um, and there's a, I mean, there's more applications here. Possessing stuff, for example, not just possessing power. Um, Paul refutes that. He's saying, you know, in the church, which I, man, I, I, I think Ryan preached on this one time too. I've been so blown away by the generosity of people in this church. Um, and I'll speak to that in a second. But Paul is saying that anything you possess that no one anywhere could have enough of anything to lead to a boast. So in the church setting, that kind of completely blows away barriers. There's not haves and have-nots. Socioeconomically, the church is like the best place, right? Because it doesn't matter. All those things are blown away because we all have everything. Uh, Psalm, this is why the psalmist warns us in Psalm uh, 62.10, warns us. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Why? Well, because we have all in Christ already. Our motive, and we're not talking about communism, right? We're not saying, hey, we should divvy everything up. We know that doesn't work. Um, first time here, once again. Uh, we're not communists. Our motive is way better than that. Our motive is way better than giving some humans ultimate power and saying, divvy this up, right? Our motive is that, no, everything, everyone already has everything. So what is it to share? Right? It's nothing to share because you already have everything, and it was given to you. All things are your possession in Christ. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. It's all here. And so dwelling on the privilege and possessions of Christ is pretty awesome. And this is all because of our union with him. And I think if we kind of plumb those depths, once again, home group setting is a great place to do that. Kind of plumb those depths of what that means. It kind of shows and it makes this place a safe haven. It makes, you know, when Jesus says that we're salt and light, like Kim mentioned that earlier, uh, we preserve. If you believe these things and kind of see how they apply, then it changes your life and you preserve people and you bring light to a world that really needs a flashlight. There's a lot of darkness. Now, in this marriage metaphor, possessions and privilege, um, it kind of leads us to prioritize some things, to use the meta marriage metaphor further. And I'm going to use biblical text here, but we sinful humans even understand a thing or two about marriage. So we understand the benefits of marriage. We know that in a human marriage, it, it exists to point us to this union with Christ. If you've gone to any gospel-centered wedding ceremony, you're going to hear this metaphor a lot. 
When we're married to someone, we prioritize them. So even our flawed marriages do that. You change your schedule for your spouse. You, I don't know how many of you maybe had some pre-spouse plans, and then when you got married, you're like, hmm, actually union with this person kind of changes my plans a little bit, right? We understand what it means to prioritize things. You have kids, and you're like, hey, kids, I love you, but you're not my spouse, right? And you prioritize your spouse over your kids. That might be a, a lesson in and of itself. We're not going to go in there right now. Do that, by the way. If you're not, do it. You're not one flesh with your kids. You're one flesh with your spouse. Uh, I'll stop. But you change your schedule. Um, when you have troubles in marriage, it's because our priorities are out of order, right? We forget what the priorities are. And in this marriage metaphor, or reality actually for us with Christ, we need to remember that Christ must be our priority. So how do you arrange your schedule to make Christ your priority? How are you doing that? So it's okay to say no to good things and, and good people because you need some time to prioritize your relationship to Christ. That's the definition of what you do when you prioritize spouse. You're necessarily saying no to other good things and you're uh, showing your spouse that all the competing interests don't matter, right? And it brings intimacy between you and your spouse. Intimacy grows. And so what priorities need to be arranged in our lives to foster more intimacy with this Almighty? The Holy Spirit will help us answer. Once again, community will help you answer. Um, but the privilege and, and possession of being united with Christ leads us to the prioritization um, of Him. I'm not trying to preach a whole sermon on verse 4, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop, but I think it would be like remiss to not like take us to the culmination of what he's trying to do with this marriage metaphor. And I'm not going to read the whole thing like I planned on doing, but go to Revelation 19, verse 6 with me real quick, or just read it on the screen. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. We didn't do it. Right? It was granted to us, these good works. Let For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's the grace of Christ. So this marriage metaphor that we see, starting with this union in Christ here, is going to be one day... Um, in heaven, and we're going to be sitting around, we'll talk about that in a second, a table with God, and I love how the angels just says, no, worship God. So what's he saying? Yes, we're married to Christ now, those of us in Christ. And, and so we sing songs, we preach, we get in community groups, and we kind of remind each other of these privileges and possessions we have in Christ. But there's going to be a day where we don't have to remind each other anymore because he's going to be sitting across the table from us. That's a beautiful thought. I love when Dylan's like, Christian, that's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful thought. That's what I want to say, Christian. That's a beautiful thought. The not yet will be the now. We're going to fully realize what a marriage is. I mean, we think about marriage in such humanistic terms. It's only a shadow, right? It makes so much more sense when we look at union with Christ. And brides, man, I'm sure you looked perfect on your wedding day, but you weren't. You were not perfect. You probably had a zit or something, covered it with makeup. <laughs> My wife didn't. She was perfect. <laughs> You probably had a negative thought. Maybe the hairdresser messed, there's a hair, and I've heard that happens before. Maybe it's a dress. <laughs> Didn't like how it looked at this certain point. I don't know. You might have had an argument with someone about something really important, like the color of a flower. That's out of place, right? Um, 
But the point is, of all the imperfections and things that come with the marriage ceremony, we understand we have a deeper longing. When the doors swing open and the imperfect bride walks in, there's still this like, oh, she looks so beautiful. Because we know down deep that it's pointing to something. We know that it's a shadow, right? And there's going to be one day when we're across the table from Christ and there will be perfected, as it says. There's no more zits. No more zits. No more uh, hair out of order or any relational strife. We're just sitting down. We're resting. We're celebrating, right? And actually, I don't know. I, sh- I shouldn't go there because I don't know if Revelation to say that. But we're just glorifying in the greatness of what God has done. And, and I love how the, the author in Revelation says that. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think it helps us see Ephesians 5 a little bit more. I always hear Ephesians 5 like quoted to me, not by my wife, but from other people, when I'm being an idiot. Uh, Ephesians 5, 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Like, hey, stop being an idiot, right? But there's something way deeper here. When you look at it from a Godward perspective, look what he says here. What's it saying about Christ? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that's you guys, right? Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, that's what we just read, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without any zits or blemishes, right? We're going to have no zits one day. It's going to be a great day, teenagers and, and beyond teenagers. Uh, <laughs> But that's what the phrase means there. And I love to think about what the end is going to be. We need to do that. We need to think about what the end is going to be because it makes your problems right now like you have hope in them. I don't want to downplay our problems, but I do at the same time. Because at the same time, they're going to be done in Christ. This is our victory. We are already united with him. That gives you a lot. And so I come in here and I'm reading this a lot. I'll talk about that in a second. But I I was just, man, I'm beaten down. I think about all my sins, I think about all the things people have let down, um, but this also gives me hope because of our union with Christ, as Christ is transforming us from one degree of holiness to another. Sometimes a marriage produces fruit of the womb, children, and the fruit of our marriage to Christ produces holiness, it says in the scripture, or another way, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I love this. Remember what Paul says at the end of the fruits of the Spirit, what it looks like? He says in Galatians 5, against such things, there is no law, which is back where we're at, right? There's no law to the Spirit. There's no end of those. There's no end to love. So in verse 5, when he says, well, we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Uh, Keep in mind, once again, the Jews believed that the law did the literal exact opposite of that. They thought that the law decreased and paid for their sin. So in verse 5, Paul says, no, actually it only aroused your sin more. That is super scandalous. And he says this. He goes further, though. The icing on the cake in verse 5, he said that the law actually worked to bear fruit to death. Meaning, if you use the law for the purpose of saving you and sanctifying you, all it does is bring death. We don't want that. That sounds bad. Imagine how it would feel to work your whole life like these guys have done. We don't want to do that. And get to the end and think you've done a great job and have God say, no, that just bore fruit to death and it meant nothing in the end. That's why we keep saying this is the most controversial thought that could have ever been spoken to these people. It, it completely slaps you in the face, which the gospel does. Calvin says this, what the law does in the absence of the inward teacher, the spirit, is increasingly to inflame our hearts so that they boil up with lusts. 
What does that look like, right? What does it mean? I mean, we can say it makes our heart blow up a bless. But what does that mean? I, I ran across Ray Steadman, if you guys have ever read him, uh, pastoral guy, 40 years, wrote a, a bunch of books on discipleship and what it means to follow the authentic Christ. And he said in his 40 years, in one of his books, he, he, he pointed out what a couple things that are great warning signs, and I want to pass them on. If, you, if you're worried that you're bearing fruit for death, here's a couple things he mentioned. Signs you're under the law. One of the first marks, he says, of a person who's living under the law is that that person's always pointing out how well they're doing, right? You see that up there? Yeah, kind of small. Always pointing out how well we're doing. It's like we're always justifying to others, like, this is what we're doing, this is why, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we start to compare ourselves and want to win or achieve because it gives glory. Those are fruits that lead to death, and we can all apply that, right? We have a lot of military here. I mean, how easy is that to slip into when you're trying to get a certain airframe you want, you're competing with others? Um, I mean, we can do this in many ways. At a job, uh, we can struggle to compare ourselves, devalue others we see as competition. Maybe I'm a coach, so I think of athletic endeavors where we compete against someone else. Man, these are all ties to, or closely tied together. And to a second one, we can come, become super uh, critical of others. We find ourselves in those frames of mind. What we're doing is we're forgetting that we're not married to the law anymore, right? We are united to Christ. And the fruit of living under this is death. It, it, it makes everything worse, right? If, if, that's, if that typifies us, as you can guess, that hurts your relationships. And I think one of the main things I was struck by as I'm sitting here trying to like, be so me-centered, even in my killing of sin, is that to bear fruit for God, um, if I don't, if I bear fruit uh, for death, it actually lands on other people too, right? Our sin isn't just our sin. It, it boils over. So we can't love or serve people correctly. Paul says in Galatians 5, when he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, that love is the primary one. But we can't love or serve people correctly, maybe purely is a better word I put up there, um, if we're trusting in the law to save us. So if we feel like we're having a hard time making, you know, real, connecting in a real way, we feel like we're lacking in community, I think sometimes it could be the answer Paul would say, man, we're, we're looking for the law to justify us instead of grace and to sanctify us. Look at what Paul, Paul says. He, he illustrates where some people are doing this in the Bible. They're, they're adding circumcision. And it says in, he says in uh, Galatians 5, For freedom, Christ has set you free. So stand firm, therefore. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, as, you know, adding on to salvation, the way he's talking about context, contextually, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Man, severed from Christ. So it's not, once again, just me trying to fight my sin. I, need to, I don't want to be led by the, the, the law. I need to be under, you know, I'm under grace. It's way more than that. <laughs> because our sin affects other people. We can't purely love people. And even more so, Christ is like, if you're doing that, if you think that the law justifies you, it's not just like, oh, no, don't worry, work harder. No, it will literally sever you from Christ. That's the opposite of the gospel. You can't have stronger words. Our bearing fruit to death is not a light offense. So that's why he uses the strongest language possible to chasten us. And that's why union with Christ is so, um, man, it hits in so many ways. Because union with Christ, if we're unified to the whole of Christ, there's not just being unified in the justification of Christ and then not the sanctification. I think Calvin said you can't split Christ apart like that? I mean, what does that mean for our lives? I mean, we, if we are not being sanctified, we were never justified. That's what he's trying to say. Uh, and that's a huge implication to this union with Christ as well. So, we're released from the law. Verse 6 kind of restates it. 
to, to wrap up here in a different way. We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. He says it in a different way. I love it. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So what's the new way? That's what we want to be. We want to live in this new way, not in the old way of the written code. Look at Romans 10.4 with me. Paul helps clarify here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we're dead to the law as a means for righteousness. I said that a million times a day. But the law, once again, I said this a million times, says a lot of good things for us. That's why Jesus quotes it in Matthew 5, 7 through 19. 17 through 19 he tells you the purpose of it. I might have had it up there, but I'm not going to read it. Um, Paul quotes the law again in Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. It's just that we're no longer under it for salvation. James says in chapter 2, verse 8, we're to keep it, we're to honor it, we're to practice it in our daily life. The law of God is perfect. We're to keep it. We're not under it. There's no condemnation. It's not the way uh, for salvation. And that doesn't mean that we don't have an interest in the law. I'm going to let Dylan unpack maybe some of the things we need if he wants to uh, go there. I'm not going to talk about all those things. But this is why Paul can say in Romans 13, later on in the, in the letter, he says in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. You can't foolishly say, I'm under grace. Not the law, I don't have to pay attention to the law because Paul literally preaches, he even lists out the Ten Commandments to them, um, to the Roman church, and they're as applicable then as they are today. There's still a wonderful setting forth of the kind of life, but they lead you to love. That's, that's the heart of it. So, it's hard to know when to stop when talking about the law. There's so much to be said. We could preach on our relationship to it for a long time. We're going to in the next couple of weeks as well. Um, and the temptation is to try to say everything. And I didn't want to do that, but I also wanted to inundate you in a way. I want you to know that this isn't like a one-off. Uh, I think the Christian church massively misunderstands, in me too, the implications or the understanding of the law and grace. Like, what was God doing with all that? Like, if I made you all fill out a, I would never do this, but uh, some people have done this. Uh, the, uh, a lot of people believed and were taught growing up that the law actually saved Old Testament saints. And then, now that Christ came, that's not true. Uh, we, we, we misunderstood that. It was always by faith, right? We, so, it's such a massive uh, misunderstanding, it's hard to know where to stop. So I want you to know that it's not just this place. The law and what God was doing with the law was not, this is not a new thing. It's all over the new covenant. Jesus affirms it. Dylan mentioned last week, uh, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 promised it, where this newness of the spirit fulfills the old covenant promise. This new covenant would give people the ability to keep the commands of the law, and it'll be written on our heart. Uh, our, a parallel passage in Galatians 5.18 to inundate you more. Uh, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Uh, the decisive thing about the law, is, as Augustine said, is that it is a demand from the outside, but uh, it's going to be now a desire from the inside. He had this quote, said, The doctrine through which we receive the commandment to lead an abstinent, virtuous life is the letter. That's the Old Testament law. This kills unless there is with it the spirit which makes alive. Another saint, Tom Schreiner, said, the letter of the law demands, but does not enable obedience. So the last scripture I would have us look at, which if you could just go at, in light of this, if you could read 2 Corinthians 3 and feast on it, it kind of shines a new light on, on our relationship to the law. And I'm not going to, for time's sake, do that, but I want to read two verses from that. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So all this talk about law, how it brings death, if we use it for salvation, 
it causes us to examine where we're trying to be saved or sanctified by the law or become more like Christ through the law and and shows us that's a useless or futile thing. Um, But this is not meant to discourage us, which is why I've tried to hammer home the unity of Christ or union with Christ. And I want to remind you something. If you don't, if you're like, you don't feel it right now, it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what the truth is, right? And so if you feel discouraged, you're like, I'm not feeling it. I want to remind you of a couple things that would encourage you. There is not a person in the world who follow the law better and more to the end of the law for salvation than the person who wrote this letter. And where did it lead him? To kill Christians. To kill the very people he's writing to now, right? That's where the letter of the law for salvation has taken this man. At least, well, to kill. He would have been put in jail. If he didn't murder, he was definitely an accomplice. Let's say that, right? He was organizing murders of Christians. No one knew and took the law to the end like Paul did. And look what God did. And it took him so far. That's a whole other thing. But it took him so far away from the actual gospel that it led him to becoming a terrorist against Christians. That's where the death will take you. But look where it's brought him. The Holy Spirit will, get, will do that to you. He's begun a good work. He's going to finish the good work. That should actually encourage you. It's not the amount of your faith. If, you're union, if, you're, if you have union with Christ... It's as impossible for you to lose that as it would be for Christ to die again. Is Christ going to die again and be re-resurrected? No. We have this up here uh, in Romans 6, 9. It says uh, right here, (laughs) literally, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So think of that. Think that since you're married to Christ, there's no divorce. You don't sin and start doing things wrong, and he's like, I'm, I'm done. Then you got to be married. No, it's none of that. He is forevermore. That's why we sing the song, Christ is mine forevermore. And that should encourage us, right? That if your faith is small right now, union with Christ tells you, you still have the whole Christ. Amen. Just a little bit of Christ is still the whole Christ. And you should be encouraged by that today. And you need to encourage each other with that today. As we sing these songs about union with Christ, and as we pray these prayers about union with Christ, And we look to the one who can say, and I'll close with this, Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. I am sure, sure that either death nor Christ, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, we forget who we belong to. We forget the privilege that we have of being your bride, of having your name attached to us. And when we forget, we harm ourselves and we're not drawing closer to you and we also know that we hurt other people. And we go back to living for our own name and in our own power. Uh, And we have been admonished today to check ourselves. God, forgive us for constantly trying to figure out how to build ourselves up and think about and reflect on and draw others uh, 
attention to how well we're doing. And forgive us for our harsh, critical hearts that we have toward other people that we think we're in competition with for goodness or maybe even for your favor, God, and that is not who we are. Jesus, your cross levels us all. It cuts us low. Your law should, should lower us as we look at your righteous standard and see how far that we fall short from your perfection. And we see how ugly we are, how sinful we are, the zits, as Jay called them. All of us are way worse off than we think. We're way more sinful than we imagine. And yet at the same time, loved and claimed and renamed and washed clean with the water of your word. And you give us a pure wedding dress. And even though we still are sinful, we're being sanctified, we're not there yet. You declare us beautiful and spotless and pure. And our place at your table is secure, Lord. You've given us good news. Let us live in it and lean into it hard, especially in the way that we treat one another. God, let us be humble. Let us be gracious and forgiving, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Give us compassion for those who don't belong to you at all and not ever lift ourselves up in our estimation, but always remember that we have nothing without you. And with you, we have everything. We have everything that we need. So let us live for your glory and for others' sake. In your name we pray. Amen.